something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star starting May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, hello, hello. Here I am again with, uh, finally, (laughs) the final part in my series on Sophocles' Antiquity. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby, and I am your host, Liv. Man, there is just too much to say in all of these plays. I can't fathom how I ever imagined doing them in like one or two parts, like in the olden days. How did I do it? Did I just ignore it all? Who was I? The lines are too good. There's so much depth and background and insights that make the plays better. It's impossible to leave things out. 
But before I dive back into the play and beyond, I want to let you all know that uh, I'll once again be doing a New Year Q&A episode. Last year, those turned out super well, and you all asked some amazing questions, so I figured, why not make it an annual thing for some of the first episodes of the new year? So the Q&A episode will be airing Friday, January 6th, the week before we begin the big Sparta series that I've got in the works, and you can ask your questions before, I think I put, like, December 31st, basically just, like, a handful of days before the 6th. You can ask your questions at mythsbaby.com slash questions. Just get them in in time for me to talk about them or answer them in that episode. That said, let's leave uh, a more wordy introduction to future episodes because there is too much to go through when it comes to Antigone, including what kind of interpretation can we make of this play and of her character and how how does she fit into some kind of feminist canon? So where we last left this Sophoclean woman, Antigone had been led off stage after her last lines of the play. And just to say it once more, yes, Antigone is officially finished speaking in this entire play. There's no more of her. And yet we still have an entire episode to talk about. I think that says a little something. In any case, Antigone is led stage to her death, to her execution, to be walled inside of a cave with just enough food that Creon can pretend that he didn't kill her outright, even if she'll die soon. Creon speaks to his son, Hymon, who was set to marry Antigone and who incredibly stands up for her and their relationship in a super powerful way. He tries to convince Creon of the horrors of what he's doing. And when that doesn't work, he basically tells his own father to fuck off or rather an even more explicit threat, suggesting that Creon will never see his son alive again due to his choices to execute Antigone for burying her own fucking brother. It's pretty great. Honestly, we like Hymon. Then Tiresias joins the stage, the famous seer of so many plays about Thebes, from Bacchae to Oedipus Tyrannos. He is always there and always knows what is going on. And he is there to tell Creon that he's made a horrible, horrible mistake. And the gods are already showing their anger. Plus, trigger warning for this episode, it is a Theban tragedy, which means... Suicide. This is episode 191, Thebes, the City of Tragedy, Sophocles' Antigone, part four. Tiresias tries to get the severity of the situation across to Creon, but it doesn't work. Creon basically acknowledges it and says that he doesn't care, that he wouldn't even let Zeus's own eagles come to earth and seize the body of Polynices. He's gone so far beyond reason and rationality here, he's just completely stuck in his own decision and his anger at being emasculated by this woman. They keep speaking to each other, but it's not going anywhere. Tiresias accuses Creon of making these sorts of mistakes before, of not believing in his prophecies or disregarding his counsel. Creon, it seems, believes Tiresias, and perhaps all prophets, are actually in it for the money and taking bribes and thus aren't truthful or to be listened to. This is really interesting, too, because Tiresias is so famous for being right about so many things, including within Creon's own lifetime with everything that went down with Oedipus, and and yet he refuses to put stock in Tiresias' warnings. It's another indication of how there's just no coming back for him. He has gone too far into his own ideas, his own nonsense, and he just can't even begin to accept that maybe he is in the wrong. Tiresias, though, is a man who gives zero fucks, and we respect the hell out of him for that. He keeps pushing Creon, showing that he is not afraid to stand up to him and and emphasizing this really beautifully when Creon asks him somewhat rhetorically, quote, do you understand you are talking about your commander? He's referencing Tiresias, just like telling him he's wrong. And Tiresias, his response is, quote, I understand since you saved this city through me. 
See, this is Tiresias reminding Creon that he's not just any old blind man rolling up to the new king of Thebes and telling him what to do. He's fucking Tiresias. Not only did he play a role in the story of Oedipus and the revelations there, but he also played a role in the war waged by Polynices and Eteocles. Tiresias warned the Thebans of what was to come. The version of what he warned and, and how tends to be tends to vary based on the sources, since so many different playwrights and poets have actually told the story of what we'll call the Seven Against Thebes. But regardless of the details of how it transpired with Tiresias, he's not new here. His prophecies have helped Thebes so many times. And Creon specifically, they helped Creon gain the power that he is now wielding. And Creon is standing against him. It's just this endless evidence that Creon is no longer seeing sense or logic. Tiresias isn't fucking around anymore. So at this point, he tells Creon plainly, Because of your decisions, it won't be long until you'll have to deal with the corpse of your own kin. He goes on to explain what we all know. The gods are not happy with Polynices remaining unburied. They are on Antigone's side. It is the right thing to do to give this man a proper burial. Not to mention, they're now not happy with what Creon is doing to Antigone. That too is murder. Whether he's trying to make it seem like punishment or something else, it is murder. And the gods are going to be mad. His speech gets more ominous as he goes on, quote, You have no right to the dead, nor do the gods above, yet you violate them even now. Hence the furies, the destructive avengers of Hades and the gods lie in ambush for you, so that you may be caught in the very same evils. He has said it. The Furies are waiting for you, Creon. And then? Then he asks Creon to think about whether what he's just said is bathed in silver. I.e., does it sound like I've been bribed? Like you keep accusing? I imagine this would be played like, super calmly, too. Very the opposite of Creon's argument with Hymon, which would have been like, emotional and heated. Hymon was trying to convince his father not to kill the woman he was set to marry. I'm not saying love because I don't, I don't actually know. Um, but Tiresias just knows what's up, knows what's right, because he's motherfucking Tiresias. Tiresias goes on to tell Creon that more tragedy is in store for him. There will be mourning in his own home. And then... Then the other city-states will come for him, the others affected by his decision not to give proper burial. Proper burial is a rite, a tradition, even in something like the Trojan War. For the most part, people are given their due burial rights. It's just, it's the accepted thing to do. Tiresias doesn't want to fight, either. He says all of this, and then he asks the boy who's been guiding him to bring them home. He says that Creon can yell at a younger man, Instead, quote, and learn to nurture a calmer tongue and better attitude than he has now. That is right, Creon. Tiresias is telling you to take a chill pill. With Tiresias having left the stage after this, his only time to shine, to just throw out this prophecy, tell Creon he's being an absolute tool, is fucking everything up, and then just mic drops and leaves. <laughs> with that, the rest of the characters are left to, to stew with what Tiresias has just announced. The chorus kind of turns to Creon with enormous cringy faces. I mean, not actually, because they're all wearing masks, but I think you can hear the cringe. They have these cringy faces, and they have to walk a fine line here. They've been sympathetic to Antigone before, minorly, at least when Creon was around, but now they still have to keep Creon happy as much as possible. He holds all the power. But at the same time, they're like, like I mean, we know Tiresias has always been right in the past, and he's saying some pretty dark shit about not only Creon and the, the fate of his family, but also like, Thebes. 
Like, this isn't going to go well. So they turn to Creon and say, well, Tiresias just left us with a lot of bad news. And then they, very diplomatically, remind Creon what he already knows. Tiresias is always right. And fortunately for them, Creon agrees. He says essentially, yeah, I know. But he's wrestling with the fact that he knows Tiresias is right, but he also cannot bring himself to admit that he is therefore wrong. Creon does love to rock his toxic masculinity just right there in the open for everyone to see. But eventually Creon does relent a bit. He asks the chorus to tell him what to do. And that in itself is pretty refreshing. And the chorus doesn't beat her on the bush. They tell him, quote, Take the girl up from her rocky cave and make a grave for the one lying dead. Basically, dude, do what everyone has been telling you to do this whole time. The thing you refuse to do because you're a stubborn asshole who became so obsessed with his own worth and power that you lost the ability to see sense and rationale and make any decent choices. Get Antigone out of that cave before it's too late and then bury Polynikes. It's what everyone, the gods included, want you to do. Creon hums and haws over this a little bit. It's not easy for him to admit that not only is he very, very wrong, but he's fucked up literally everything with his bad decisions. He has to get there on his own time, though. Unfortunately, it does only take a couple of lines exchanged between the chorus of Theban elders and Creon before he admits defeat and announces that, okay, he's gonna go to the cave where he's had Antigone walled away. He's gonna personally free her as a means of absolving himself, and then he's gonna... Finally, 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 have the poor corpse of Polynikes buried. Creon's left the stage to do this, and only the chorus remains. They're there to sing a song that will not only convey the passage of time while Creon travels to the cave where he imprisoned Antigone, but they're also there to speak of their own city and all of its many accomplishments and tragedies, and particularly to sing some praise for the god of their city. As I have said before, Thebes is just such a unique place in that so, so much of the most famous mythology of ancient Greece is explicitly tied to the city itself. From Cadmus to Heracles to the Seven Against Thebes, they have more mythology than, quite possibly, the rest of the surviving myths and regions combined. I don't think there's a single other ancient Greek city with more myths tied to it. And so here, the chorus will sing a song of Thebes. They sing first and foremost of Dionysus, the only god born to a mortal mother and the only god with such a real and true mortal homeland. They sing of Bacchus's city, of the famous river Ismenos, and the land where Cadmus planted the dragon's teeth, where the Spartoi, the sown men, leapt from the earth and fought one another, leaving just enough to found the city alongside their new and first king Cadmus. They sing of the nearby mountains, of the Castalian spring, and the Corcyrian cave where the nymphs dance. All of this song revolves around Dionysus, tying him to the city and the region broadly. They sing to Bacchus, quote, You honor Thebes above all cities, you and your lightning-struck mother. Lightning-struck mother. Oh, I both love and hate that name for Semele so much. It's a reminder of her tragic death, but it's also awesome. But then the chorus turns their song to what's happening in Thebes now. They sing of a violent sickness gripping the city and they ask for Dionysus to return, to travel over Mount Parnassus where the oracle gives her prophecies and to return to Thebes to help his city. Quote, O Lord, appear before us with your attending thyads, who dance all night in frenzy for you, generous Dionysus. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you 
to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star starting May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A messenger arrives on the stage. He speaks of the house of Cadmus and Amphion, the founders of Thebes, greeting the chorus. Then he speaks of luck, the lucky and the unlucky, how no one can predict the present. He speaks of Creon, how he was respected when he chose to take over the kingship of Thebes after the death of Ateocles. He speaks of how Creon saved Thebes, how he steered it straight, how he had noble children to continue the line. Then he says, quote, And now all has been lost, for whenever a man's pleasure deserts him, I don't consider him alive, but a living corpse. He goes on. He says that people can fill their homes with all the wealth in the world, quote, Live like a tyrant. But he adds, without happiness, one has nothing. All the wealth in the world doesn't mean anything if one isn't happy. 
At this, the chorus asks him what news he has about their king. The messenger says, quote, They are dead, and the living are guilty of their death. Who is dead and who is the murderer? The chorus asks him. He tells them that Hymon, the king's own son, is the one who is dead, and at his own hand. And at this, the chorus calls out to Tiresias, saying that he was right after all. And with that said, another new character joins the stage, Creon's wife, Eurydice. And no, not that Eurydice, just another woman named Eurydice. Creon's wife, Hymen's mother, and the new queen of Thebes, Eurydice. She tells the messenger and the chorus that she was just heading outside to worship Athena. She was going about her day and worshipping the goddess when she heard their words about her son. So she asks that the messenger repeat himself. Is it really true? The messenger tells her. He was there, he says, so he's able to share the whole of what happened. He explains that he's going to be blunt. What is the point of lying or sugarcoating what happened? He would only be exposed for it later when the truth came out. He tells her that he was with Creon, guiding him to where Polynices' body lay, still unburied. He says that there they, they prayed to Hecate, goddess of the crossroads, and to Pluton, the cult name for Hades. They wanted the two appeased before they, finally, prepared Polynices' body for his rightful burial. They did all they needed to, they gave him a ritual bath, they built him a pyre, and they burned what was left of him. They built him a high tomb made of his native Theban soil. And then they went to Antigone, or rather to the cave where Antigone had been imprisoned. Once again, they call it her bridal chamber in a cave of Hades. It's fitting and powerful. But another reminder that for all the emasculating Antigone has done, for all she's been a strong character standing up to power, this play isn't, a, isn't trying to make her any less of a woman in the ancient Greek sense. This is her bridal chamber because that is all a woman has, at least in Athens, where Sophocles was writing this play. Marriage or death. Before they reached the cave, though, they could hear wailing inside. Cries of misery and anguish echoing from inside the cave. When Creon hears this news, the, the messenger explains, he cried out, quote, Oh, misery, am I a prophet? Shall I crawl on the most unfortunate paths of all roads traveled? He goes on. Then he hears his own son's voice from within the cave. And, and this causes him to rush in a way that Antigone's fate didn't. He buried Polynices before he deigned to visit her in the cave that he had trapped her inside. Though Polynices was long dead and Antigone was, we assume, still alive. But to hear that his son is also inside, oh, that moved Creon along. And within the cave, they saw her, Antigone. She was hanging by a noose around her neck. Creon's son, Hymon, was wrapped around Antigone's body, crying over her. Creon tries to get him to leave the cave, to leave Antigone's body, and all Hymon does is stare back at his father with a look of grief and anger. And before anyone can stop him, he's drawn his sword and still staring Creon in the eye. He pierces it through his side, with the blood bubbling from his mouth. He still holds on to Antigone's body as he dies. The messenger's final lines as he tells the chorus and Hymon's mother Eurydice this story are, quote, He lies corpse upon corpse, receiving marriage rites at last, poor man, in Hades' house revealing to humankind how ill counsel is by far the greatest evil for man. And with this, Eurydice leaves. The course mentions this, how she leaves without speaking a word. The messenger hopes it, it's good, that she'll do her mourning in her home in, instead of publicly. The chorus, though, sees it as an omen for much worse. 
But before they can dwell too much on what it is that Eurydice has gone to do, though I imagine you might be able to take a guess, Creon returns to the stage. He's lamenting, of course, his own decisions, his stubbornness. And, and then he says, in this Diane Rayer translation, quote, Oh, child, so new to life, new to death. Oh, woe, you died, not sent from life by your doing, but by my bad counsel. And now this line made me wonder. When he says child, is he referring to his own child, Hymon, or to his niece, Antigone, or to both? One would think Antigone might get some kind of immension. The play is named for her, after all, and she's the one who was right all along. But no, I've referenced three other translations, and, and both clarify here. Not, it's not just child, it's son. Now, it's possible that Rayer is picking up something in ambiguity in the Greek here, and I would love to know. I went to look at the Greek itself, and it does seem to be at least a masculine word, but still. It's fascinating. Still, I think it's safe to say that Creon is speaking of his son here. He has little care for Antigone's death, except that it caused his son's death, too. There is no mention of Antigone. Creon speaks now of learning his lesson, of how his grief is overwhelming. I'm not going to focus on it because, frankly, this play is already too much about Creon for a play called Antigone. And even in her death, we are not talking about Antigone. No one talks about Antigone. We're talking about Hymon and Creon's grief. A feminist play, indeed. Still, now the messenger returns, and, and he's got more bad news. He tells Creon that his wife, Eurydice, is dead inside the house. She, too, has killed herself. And with this, we get more of Creon's grief, more of his woe, his complaints about his own decisions, about himself. It's still fully about Creon. For Eurydice's sake, we can speak of her. She's just lost both her sons over the course of a short while. Her other son, who's named Megarius in this version, was killed during the war, and now Hymon. The messenger tells Creon that, quote, She cursed your evil actions as child murderer. There is more of Creon's grief and, and more of his wailings, his laments. I'm pretty over him, though. I'm sick of his bullshit decisions to lead that led to horrifying tragedies, all because a man couldn't control himself, couldn't check his emotions. This man was too emotional to be a leader. Too full of wrath and toxic masculinity and... I'm just over Creon, which is fine because after a handful more lines lamenting his wife's death and his son's death and absolutely not a single fucking mention about Antigone's death or how that's all his fault, too, he leaves the stage. And the chorus speaks the last lines of the play, quote, By far, good sense is the first principle of happiness. One must not disrespect what belongs to the gods. Great blows punish great boasting by arrogant men and teach good sense in old age. Antigone is never mentioned again. Her death in that cave is only mentioned in how it relates to Hymon's death. She becomes a footnote in a play named For Her. Let's be honest. This is a play about standing up to power. It is not a play about a woman. And 2,500 years later, people call it feminist. So let's talk about it. So Sophocles' play Antigone ends like that. But I'm not done. There's so much to say about this play. Okay. I would love to hear if if there's some glaring interpretation of Antigone that I am missing. Like I understand her role in speaking truth to power and standing up for what she believed was right in the face of Creon's threats and punishment. Like obviously that in itself is a powerful statement. But I think that so much of the rest of her character is about making herself into a martyr, and then she's just gone. Like, it becomes about complaining about her fate, about how horrible she's had it, rather than about the family that she chose to honor in the first place. She becomes whiny. She becomes much more the typical woman of Greek tragedy, only concerned with herself. 
as a play and a character within that play. Antigone is one of the most famous and certainly one that's so often claimed to be some kind of proto-feminist icon. A strong woman in myth where so few existed. A strong woman standing up to a man. But honestly... Beyond what I've said about the obvious aspects of her actions, and I mean, sure, the explicit emasculation going on, like, I just don't see it. It seems to me that Sophocles is creating a woman who's like a man, not a strong woman for the sake of being a strong woman. She's just like a man. And I mean, that's in part, I'm sure, because he didn't have the same, like, capabilities as us, and just in terms of, like, even seeing what women are capable of, because he's from this time when women are basically property, like... I'm speaking about Athens here in this exact time period. Like, there are variations. But right now, when Sophocles is writing, that's pretty much it. So maybe he just can't imagine a woman who's strong for being a woman rather than strong because she's co-opting these masculine roles. Because she's, like, explicitly emasculating a man. And that's all fair and good. I don't really want to pass any judgment on Sophocles when it comes to this play. What I'm interested in is how she's viewed now. From what I've gathered, there are an awful lot of typically older white men who want to feel good about their taste in Greek literature, to feel like they're good feminists or respect women, specifically because they advocate for Antigone being taught or performed or whatever. Basically using this play as a means of feeling good about oneself when it it comes to the rights and treatment of women. And I mean, I think there's probably a way to perform this play that is powerful in that respect, but the explicit play as it stands in the ancient canon... It's not really that. The play is amazing. Let me say that clearly. My opinions aren't about the play itself or the message. They're about how we see this woman. Antigone isn't inherently feminist just because she's a woman taking on a man's role. That would It, feel, it feels regressive. That would just be taking away her femininity in favor of men. And certainly does nothing for anything resembling equality. She isn't respected for being a woman in this in this case. She's respected for emasculating Creon and taking on a more masculine role. That It doesn't feel like feminism to me. It doesn't feel empowering. And again, maybe it was back then, but I don't think that means it's explicitly feminist now. It's a great play about a pretty strong woman. Score. You can perform it amazingly right now. But the play as it stands... She becomes whiny and weak and a full-blown martyr when things don't go her way. She pushes her sister away even when she wants to help because she has she has to feel like she's the one doing the right thing alone. Not to mention the fact that she's finished all her speaking lines before line 1000 out of a play with just under 1400 lines. Creon speaks twice as much as her and then Hymon's death is announced officially with Antigone's death just like a smaller part of the story of what happened to him. Like it's a side note. It's like, ultimately, it's not even about her. Like, this play is about Antigone to the extent that she is a foil for Creon and the eponymous character. But more than Antigone, it's about Creon descending into tyranny and what that means for Greek city-state and his family. This, that's what was more relevant to Sophocles anyway. Like, that's what he was interested in looking at. And it's a good play for that. It's not a good play for feminism. (laughs) Remember the line by Creon, quote, Now I'm no man and she's the man. I think that alone makes the point I'm trying to convey. Like Antigone simply takes on the role of a man explicitly. And he says later, quote, better felled by a man if need be than called weaker than women. Like I know Creon is the bad guy, but he's still emphasizing the overall issue here. She isn't being seen as a strong woman. She's being seen as a woman usurping a man. She's there's a huge difference. She takes manhood away from Creon. And while that's kind of refreshing and like nice, I don't mind it. I don't think it does a lot for a feminist cause. If a woman is just becoming less of a woman in order to become stronger in the world, that's just a different flavor of misogyny because it suggests that women have to be less womanly, less feminism if they're going to be strong. Antigone just becomes a man. And gods know that's not what most women want. We just want a legitimately equal world. It's just been so interesting to me reading how people write about Antigone, reading the way men talk about it online. Even just like when I briefly posted about it on Twitter, there were only men praising that play, at least from what I experienced, like let alone. And I'm not talking about listeners, by the way. I'm talking about like people in the world of classics, academia and beyond. Yeah. (laughs) Let alone that there's this new ish uh, classics journal that takes her name and is pretty conservative mess. It's named Antigone, and 
And that's just something. It's saying something, you know? In the bonus, um, so a friend of mine and past guest on the show, Avon McMaster, wrote about whether Antigone passes the Bechdel test. And well, both she and I would argue that it, it doesn't, though there are a lot of men who argued with her that it does. Seems like mostly men, if not only. So here's the deal. If you don't know, the Bechdel test has become a really like broad concept and has lots of history. But the basics are that something passes the test if two named women in a piece of art, movies, TV, literature, play, whatever. If two named women have a conversation with each other that doesn't revolve around a man, like talking about a man. Now, the implication is that they'd be talking about the man in terms of romance or relationship broadly, but the basics are they just have to talk about a man. Antigone and Ismini are the two women in this play, named, who talk to each other in a sea of men. And while they do speak to each other, they talk about Polynikes and Creon. They talk about power as it relates to Polynikes and Creon, but they talk about Polynikes and Creon. They're not talking about a romantic relationship. Fine. And they're talking about power, but they're also just not talking about anything other than a man. I'm sure I'm just rambling now, but covering this play really opened my eyes, not only to how it might have been viewed in the ancient world, but how it's treated now. And I just, I mean, it's its very good, but I do think that if we're looking for a play that actually exemplifies like a complex woman character, there are an awful lot of Euripides plays that we can look to, or even just like Sophocles' Trichinii, the story of Dianera and Heracles that I told you earlier this year. I will take a Dianera over an Antigone when it comes to strong women. A whole lot less complaining in martyrdom in the former. I want to make sure I spent a decent amount of time talking about this issue because so often Antigone is treated like one of the best, most important plays from ancient Greece. Like if you only read one, read this. Like it's weird. Really, really often it's at the top of every single list. And the list is typically made by men. I think that by raising up Antigone as this kind of pillar of not only Greek tragedy, but also womanhood and depictions of women in the ancient world, like... By doing that, we're legitimizing everything it contains as a kind of feminism, when, at least from where I'm sitting, it definitely is not feminism. And frankly, while Antigone is an amazing play, and it's interesting, and the themes of standing up to power are important, that is the theme of the play. It's about speaking truth to power, doing what's right, standing up to tyrants. It's not about a woman doing that. It just happens that Antigone is, in fact, a woman. And obviously it has greater implications that she is a woman. Like that's something that Sophocles is intentionally playing with, but it is not the point of the play, you know? (laughs) And so I found this article about feminism and Antigone. It's actually just from this past January of this year. So it's, it's super recent. I'll admit I did not read all of it because what I read, uh, yeah, it, it makes some good points about Antigone and the broad idea of feminism. Uh, but it basically everything it bases everything off this flawed idea that just because Antigone explicitly takes on manly qualities that that equals feminism and just yeah no uh, but if you're curious I've linked to it in this episode's description and uh, yeah surprise surprise it, it was written by a man there's also a lot of describing Antigone as headstrong I don't know if it's just me but that word it screams a false sense of feminism and understanding of the issues at hand that's for sure I do also want to say, though, and this is sort of something that came up because I just recorded part three before recording this. So this is unscripted and we're going to see how it goes. But I do think also like seeing Antigone in as a as a figure who stands up to tyranny and to power, particularly right now, is really powerful when we're looking at what's happening in Iran. And somehow to me, like that loops in the women aspect in a way that like Sophocles doesn't but I think we can now if that makes any sense like I was reading that the the script for part three and thinking about that and it just like was screaming at me this idea of Antigone in that case as women standing up to to tyrants but also to like misogyny inherent in that tyranny which is obviously what is happening in Iran of course it's more than just women it's just like Iranians broadly fucking kick ass like this it's amazing um but it was interesting to me seeing it in that respect and i don't want to take away from that by saying that antigone isn't feminist it's just like they're you know i think you have to see it in different ways but in terms of like the exactly what is in the play as it stands i don't think it's feminist Oh, nerds, 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 nerds. Thank you so much for listening. 
fuck, I love Greek tragedy so much. I could do this forever. Um, but this one really, especially in this episode, was really quite unique. Again, just because of how it's viewed now and by whom, you know? And I just think... I think it's pretty clear throughout, but these are just my opinions on this play. Uh, and I'm I'm already worried about how people are going to yell at me because uh, it's Antigone. Um, I'm sure women and other people who aren't just like cishet white men have a lot of thoughts and opinions. And maybe they could argue into the ground that Antigone is indeed feminist. And frankly, I'm here for those arguments. Like, I would love to hear them. I would like to know what I'm missing. What I found interesting was simply what I came across at the time of writing this. And frankly, I, I didn't see I didn't seek it out. Um, I, like... I just wanted to cover this play like I always do, which is just as it stands in the ancient world. But in this case, it was a couple of replies to tweets and then things that spawned from that that led me to be just like totally fascinated by this whole situation and want to actually talk about how I see the play in terms of feminism. And again, like Antigone herself, awesome. Ismini, deeply awesome. This play is great. I just think straight white dudes pat themselves on the back a bit too much when it comes to calling it feminist and like loving it more than any other it's like it makes them seem like they're good allies or something i don't know get some new material find something that actually represents some form of equality rather than just a woman usurping a man's role and being killed for it and then them not caring one lick about her death in the play it's like it stops mattering the second she leaves the stage and that is fucking wild Anyway, I've clearly said enough about this. So as always, let me finish on a five-star review by one of you awesome listeners. It's actually an unintentionally perfect review. I didn't think about it until as I'm saying these words out loud. Um, Please consider leaving me a review, a five-star, because I love them and they make me happy. And also a guy recently left me one star because he listened to like some of the earliest episodes of the show and decided I didn't know what I was talking about. And he definitely didn't take into account that like I've been doing this for five years and I don't know, maybe I've gotten better. (laughs) This awesome five-star review is from the user... Crit cut its scam. I don't know. Uh, in the UK. And I've actually cut some of it because it was super long. I loved reading it. It was so good. Uh, but I won't have you all listen to the whole thing. Intersectionally wonderful ancient mythology. I have about five podcasts I've ever kept up to date with and consistent with, and this is my top one. It takes a lot to get my ADHD and dyslexic brain to pay attention and process auditory information, and the storytelling in Myths Baby is perfect for that. I am massively appreciative uh, that on the specialist topics, Liv has a hugely diverse range of guests to help inform the topic, rather than ignoring or trying to represent one group's narrative. I love listening to the growth of her research skills and the ways in which she's learning to be an excellent ally. (laughs) Don't worry, the HP references are addressed later on in a refreshing acknowledgement of personal growth. Easy listening, great guests, feminist and intersectional critical thinking, academic input, conversational tone, LGBTQIA and queer concepts, and wonderful accessibility. I hope the SEO puts this podcast on the radar of the people who will love it. Thank you. That was really lovely and it means a lot when... I get that kind of recognition. I'm trying to be the best I possibly can. Uh, Things grow and change and podcasts are really weird because the oldest stuff still lives on forever and people treat it like it's brand new and uh, sometimes it's difficult. Let's talk about Miss Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians. She handles so many podcast related things from running the YouTube to creating promotional images and videos to editing and research. Whew. Stephanie Foley works to transcribe the podcast for YouTube captions and accessibility. The podcast is hosted and monetized by Acast. Help me continue bringing you the world of Greek myth and the ancient Mediterranean by becoming a patron where you'll get bonus episodes and more. Visit patreon.com slash mythsbaby or click the link in this episode's description. Thank you all for being here. You're super cool and nerdy. And who doesn't love super cool nerdy nerds? I am Liv and I love this shit. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. 
Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star starting May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.